Welcome to the Borders and Globalization podcast. Welcome to our listeners. My name is Ben and I'm working as a researcher for the Borders and Globalization Lab. I'm speaking from the traditional territory of the Lekwegen peoples in the Selish Sea region. As we know, borders are legal construct, conventional line, lines on the map, landmarks on the ground, and a zone of control and violence. But borders are also an artistic object. Sometimes it is the border itself, which is the support of a work of art. Other times they appear in works of photography, comics, and movies. Speaking of movies, we could think of the film Terminal, which was inspired by a true story of an Iranian refugee stuck in a French airport for 18 years for problems with administrative papers. Today, we are going to talk about border film with Michael Deere, who has just published a book called Border Witness, Reimagining the US-Mexico Borderlands Through Film. Hello, Michael. Welcome on board. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. The interview will be divided in five sections for the convenience of our listeners. First section about border and cinema, the state of play. To begin our interview, Michael, my first question concerns the border in cinema and the question of definition. What is border film? Okay, I'll tell you quite quickly, but let me first thank you um, and also Emmanuel, Victor Conrad and others at Borders in Globalization uh, for this very kind information okay, in the taping of this uh, podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Um, um, let's, let me start simply and we'll complicate things quite quickly, I think, and say I, I regard border films as taking place in a borderland setting um, and it has a thematic focus on lives of border people as well as their cross-border connections. That's the first cut into the whole wide world of border film. Great. Thank you, Michael, for this definition. <clears throat> The border, as you know, is paradoxical. It divides, it connects, it separates, it unites. What specific representation of the borderlands are featured in border film? Well, quite a lot. I mean, the, the book covers a hundred years of filmmaking in Mexico and the United States. Um, so there was an enormous amount of material, far more than I imagined when I be began working on this topic. Um, so let me just say as an opening and regarding the early silent film days, um, it was amazing to me how quickly stereotypes about people and about situations uh, emerged in film. And they, were, they, they have stayed in, by and large to the present day. For example, if you look at the US films, Mexican males were usually um, portrayed as lazy good-for-nothings or you know, Latin lovers. Um, Mexican females were always exotic dams, exotic seductresses or damsels in distress. Um, and they were usually awaiting rescue by a, a white gringo 
for example. So in a film called um, Shorty's Trip to Mexico, uh, the end of the film is achieved when uh, Shorty carries his Mexican fiance across the border and tells her, now you will be known henceforward as Mrs. Shorty USA. That kind of stereotyping is uh, lasted a long time. But if you if you go on for a moment, the Mexican perspective, uh, they looked at American males as ugly Americans, basically, uh, interested in very little uh, the making money and believing in in very very not much at all. Uh, American U.S. females were then predatory blonde blondes who were aggressively independent. Uh, at the same time, Mexicans portrayed their own women, Mexican women. As, uh, as either as saintly mothers or as godless whores. Um, now, those kinds of stereotypes quickly got based, first of all, and quite largely in the Western film genre. These were cowboy and Indian films, um, which, which told stories um, later of the revolution, for example, in the same guise. But they were always set um, almost always set in desert landscapes with exotic flora and fauna uh, and towering mesas uh, uh, dominating the scenery. So it was, it was actually watching these kinds of films on a Saturday morning um, in a movie theater with Tom Mix and the Cisco Kid and people like that. That was my first exposure to Mexico and Mexicans. And really... Um, I started seeing Mexico through film when, when I was really very young. Um, um, so that was uh, beginnings of the representation issue simply in Westerns and as quite crude stereotypes of either a hero or some a villain or some kind of uh, untouchable woman or a slut, putting it frankly. So that's what we, that's, those are the representations that we can begin with, and I think we we will evolve more understanding of those representations as this conversation continues. And I talk about other films. Thank you, Michael, for this great overview. Um, <clears throat> let's move on to the second question. Your book, Border Witness, Reimagining the US-Mexico Borderlands Through Film. <clears throat> the border is also an issue of power, a theater where the state produces its authority. The word witness is from Old English witness, meaning attestation of fact, event. My question is this one. Where did the idea for this border witness book come from? Uh, that's an interesting question to me and also a long question, a long answer. So I'll just be, give you a, a sketch. Um, since that childhood fascination with Mexico was born, um, I, I maintained it for the rest of my life. Uh, and in fact, when I first came to North America, um, I went to Uxmal, Chichen Itza. These are the American archaeological sites, which somehow captured my imagination. And later, when I was older, I went on then to other sites in Veracruz, in Oaxaca. Um, and then I spent time along the Baja California border when I moved to Los Angeles um, and ultimately ended up taking a border long trip on both sides uh, in the early 2000s, which is about 4,000 miles and really took me much longer than I thought it was going to take. 
Um, as a result of these works, uh, of these, these explorations rather, um, I published a book called Why Wars Won't Work in 2013. And the title will tell you what I think about wars. Um, they simply don't work. Um, but in that book, I examined the myriad ways in which the, both sides of the border were connected. Uh, and largely in a material sense, um, going to school, going to work, crossing to see families and friends, crossing for, for recreational purposes. In fact, living your lives as everyday people, but being separated by an international boundary. One of the things that I didn't deal with and I always wanted to deal more with was the, the question of a cognitive awareness of what living in this borderland territory meant to the people themselves. You know, how, do, how would they see their connections? How do they organize their lives? So I needed to find out how these shared histories, how these are common identities, and how these languages and attachment to land all came together to define a situation in the borderlands, the US-Mexico borderlands, where people would say to me that they identified more with their own borderland nation than they did with their own home nations, with either the United States or with Mexico. And that degree mm -hmm. of connection led me to feel I needed to find a way to collect evidence about mental maps uh, that, that allowed us to talk about transborder or even post-border environments. And it seemed to me after a little while that this would be an impossible task. It's just asking too much. Then and this is the end of the story for now, um, I had been watching border films for as long as I can remember. And I, it suddenly it came to me that exactly the kind of evidence that I wanted was tied up in filmic, cinematic representations of the borderlands. From the early silence, which were crude but fascinating, through the, all the marvelous westerns by John Ford, et cetera, et cetera. They all portrayed a consistent landscape, a consistent set of peoples um, in rapidly evolving circumstances over at least a century, and even more if you consider the historical films. At, the, at that moment, I knew I had my evidence. I knew I had my evidence of what I was looking at. But I need to say one more thing because I turned myself into a witness. Um, and that happened really through the works of James Baldwin and The Devil Makes Work, a, a, a remarkable work of film criticism and perception about the, the, the role of racism in American films, the place and, and the representation of race in, in American films. And the point that Baldwin made that has really hit home to me, he said, when asked to consider how he judged the films for their authenticity, for their veracity, his reply was almost invariably, it is because I saw it. It was because I witnessed it. Wow. And he, was, he did what I ended up doing because I had, I've spent three or more decades in Mexico now um, I used my own knowledge, albeit not native knowledge. I'm not, uh, I wasn't born there. 
Um, but I use that knowledge as a check, as a, as a way to judge the truth, if you want, of, the, of, of the, what the films was, were betraying to the extent that they jived with my own experiences. It's a, it's a very idiosyncratic, very personal way of doing things. But in my studies in geohumanities, I've always been obsessed by, you must tell me what your evidence was so I know the basis for the judgments that you make. It might be statistical, it might be photographic, it might be sheer pleasure, preference, whatever it is, I need to know so I, what we're talking about. So I brought this idea about knowing Mexico from my childhood, and it met at one point James Baldwin, who, who told me that my films, my film background, my film learnings were ideal vehicles for the collection of evidence about what I came to be called the third nation between the United States and Mexico. Thank you. Great, Michael. Thank you very much for sharing all this background. <clears throat> As you have said, this book is also a sharing of your personal experience. Uh, you did research work, you did travels. In a few words, Michael, what has been in more details your experience, personal experience about borders? Um, well, briefly, um, I'm a true border, border scholar like you are, um, in the sense that we understand the borders are much more than lines, imaginary lines drawn on maps. Um, and there's a geography about it as well, because the border extends very far and deeply into our own, into our own nations. Los Angeles uh, is a border city. Um, Monterrey and Nuevo Leon is a border city, although they're hundreds of miles from the border. Um, so when I first went there, um, my experience was wrong. Um, my experience that I was bringing to it was that I would be looking at drug trafficking, I would be looking at national security, I would be looking at immigration. And yes, those are big and important topics, but I was immediately bowled over by the people at the border, their, the, the way they lived their lives um, and the connections between both sides of the border. And, and it was that experience which really um, made me who I am and also gave me my program for research and investigation and teaching. It is, as you said, a border as a connective tissue, not as a separating divide. Um, people I know uh, in Mexico very often say they forget, they forget which side of the border they're on. Yeah. Uh, such is the commonality of their experiences. Um, now, of course, just to bring it quickly up to date, in a sentence or two, um, the militarization of the border, the fortifications and so on, have made it tremendously difficult for people to live, yeah. um, interrupting, interrupting communities which have existed for centuries before Mexico and the United States even existed. So my, I'm amazed by how border people, but the tenacity of border people in putting up with this occupation. Um, and I'm also amazed by how much civility still exists on the border. It is a wonderful place. And just to give you a, a brief show, a brief example, in, in my book, um, I, I talk about the US-Mexico borderlands. And in 
I give my address at the end of the book as the United Borderland States. Mm -hmm. That's of my degree of affection and um, identification with that area. That's my experience. Thank you, Michael. About your book, uh, your book is divided into three parts, origins, fusions, and witness. What are the chapters about and uh, what are the key messages of your book, finally? Hmm. This is a very good question. Um, I, I set boundaries to myself, but I didn't go into the project knowing them. Um, I just I just read, um, and ironically enough, this was during the COVID period, so I had a lot of more more, more time than I usually do. Um, but I read, I started reading books and accounts, critical uh, studies, newspapers, and so on, um, just that and on an ad hoc basis. I went back to a hundred years of film um, by accident because that's where. You know, the early silence started and et cetera, et cetera. I came right right to the present day. And then when I did that, I thought, if I'm going to actually talk about the border, I should, I should understand Mexican films too. So I went, I went back to the start and I did my best to learn about Mexican films, which incidentally is not so easy uh, because uh something like i think 80% of the mexican film archive was destroyed in a fire in oh. the late 1980s in mexico city and all uh researchers now historians etc um are, are burdened by this tragic loss in the mexican film archives because i let you into a little secret the films were fantastic of course um, we we underestimate Mexican film and television industry uh, immensely. And whatever we had in Hollywood in those early days in the 30s and so on, Mexico had their equivalents in Churubusco City there, in Mexico City. So uh, I'm digressing. Um, I started with silence. Um, I looked then uh, at what, what you might call the, the golden age um, of border films, beginning with the, with the birth of border films um, around the middle middle of the 20th century and then proceeding into the present day in the 21st. I'm going to talk more about this a little bit later in detail, but I'll just keep it at this level. Um, there are uh, histories about both countries so that you can understand what the films are talking about. Um, mm -hmm. There are discussions of the Mexican and the US film industries um, so that you can understand certainly Uh, the corrective understanding of how important the Mexican film industry was and is. And then in the later sections of the book, there are individual chapters which, which look at themes. Um, and I'll give you one example. Um, one of the most important uh, thematic emphases uh, in the book is about the changing role of women in film. It was quite staggering to me um, to read that and to find out how it emerged. I'll give you one brief example. A um, Mexican film called Miss Bala uh, was made in, in the early part of the 2000s. And it was, a, it was a tragic story of women being forced to traffic, uh, to carry uh, drugs and, uh, and uh, other things into the United States. Um, and the woman who uh, 
was the was the heroine in that film. She what the best thing that happened to her was that she was and the only thing that measured her success was that she was still standing and alive uh, at the end of the film. She was a terrified, exhausted, finished human being. When that film was made ten years later uh, in the United States, Miss Bala was now a super heroine. She was an agent for the CIA and she went around killing drug cartel owners, et cetera, et cetera. It was a, a complete wreckage compared with the early uh, film, but it did represent the way uh, women were being represented, um, and the way women changed, the way representations of women were changing all the time on the film. Um, I brought all this together in what I called the genre, the board film genre. And in, in the end of the, of the book, we look at a hundred years of film and we look at the encapsulations of the history, both in the industry and in both countries. And I, I manufacture my understanding of what the genre is about. I was working at that by then with about 130 films, although I'd seen a lot more. And I boiled that down to 72 key films which define the genre. Um, only then was I ready to start uh, thinking about how I could use this further. But it was, it was a delightful journey and a wonderful experience. I was ready. By the time I finished the book, I was ready to start it again. <laughs> Great, Michael. Thank you for this presentation of your book. And I, didn't about... say, I didn't talk about key messages. I can say something about that if you want to. Of course. Okay. Share with us. Um, they were simple. And sometimes they were confirming. And sometimes they were new to me. Um, strong connections across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands as other borderlands in the world. Have, uh, they've been existing way before our current nation state boundaries. Um, strong connections, incidentally, then means positive things and negative things, right? In some ways, war is uh, is a very negative, but it establishes a connection between two nations. So it's that, it's that long-going, deep-time connectivity across the borderlands, which weren't borderlands in the past, which struck me very strongly. Okay. Um, the real-world importance of the borders cannot be underestimated. Uh, the U.S.-Mexico border is home to about 10 million people. Um, over a billion dollars worth of trade crosses that border every single day. Um, and our, our global security depends on what happens in that small strip of land. These insights are reflected in the films are commented on in the films. Now, I'll give a few more examples a little bit later on. Yes. Um, but in addition to which, there's a normative dimension here in that um, the representations in border film uh, happen to, you know, they, they talk about peaceful existence, they talk about collaboration over time, but they're also a commentary. They're also criticism uh, of, of what trans-border communities are, have been, and can be. Uh, and it's that critical dimension, that, that forensic parsing of our real and imagined past that becomes to me, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's a wonderful toolkit to open up 
um, what what the borderlands means, and it tells us too. The borderland people have more lessons to tell us in the in the rest of the country, in Mexico and the United States, and even elsewhere, about how to live our lives properly in peaceful coexistence, in harmony, collegiality, and in cooperative ways. I mean, it's an it's an it's a place of amazing instruction for the rest of us. And I, you get that in your films, especially when you see the way films will comment uh, on, on a piece of the world at a particular time. Um, and that's actually quite wonderful. It's, 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 a, it's a forensic tool that I didn't imagine and foresee. Great, Michael. Thank you for this presentation of your book and specifically about these key messages. We enter now in our third section, the section about border film and border studies. Borders are often seen as lines and walls, as you just said, tools that divide geography and populations. But is it possible to construct other representation of the border? For instance, aren't borders also zones of cultural mixing? And you have just spoken about that. If yes, do you have some good examples? Ah, yes. Um, but let me, I'll talk about some examples, but I'll explain the way I see this. Um, yes, of course, there are so many different ways of mixing. And so with it, a lot of my book is, in a lot of my work, the keywords are about hybridity and about uh, and about fusion. Um, so there's, as, without going into any kind of strong ac academic scholarly detail, um, there's there's a natural tendency in the world, it seems, because fusion and and uh, mixing is like part of the normal sequence of human life and flora and fauna and about the evolution of even the planet. Um, and meetings of populations, be they plants, animals, or humans, you know, are characterized by convergence and mixing, what we'd say in, in Spanish, um, the, the way those collisions occur and the way convergence brings change. That's a universal feature in, in world living, I think. And so that, in a sense, uh, everything is is a hybrid. And yeah. everything um, is, is a cultural, economic, political, linguistic mixing, as you, as you said in your introduction a moment ago. And then if I can be a little bit um, academic for a moment. I mean, I did not write an academic book. Um, I did not write a book on formal film theory or formal film criticism. I deliberately was unpacking it um, with, with sound scholarship, obviously behind it, but trying to write it in a way which would appeal to uh, a general public. But, but if you look at what happens in the book, any border scholar who, who's talking today about debordering or rebordering, et cetera, are reading about this in my book. Um, the portrait in the film Traffic, for example, a very famous 
film in 2000, which I think began the golden age of border film. Um, it was actually a film about globalizing of, of the drug trafficking industry, drug production, drug trafficking, drug movement, drug consumption. It, it was actually quite spectacular as a film. As a film was important because of, it was a mega Hollywood production, huge stars, huge amounts of money going. The first one that, ha that happened in. Incidentally, it drew on, an, on a, a, I think it was a British German television series also called Graphic, um, which showed these, these uh, global connections better because it went to Pakistan and Afghanistan where the product was being grown. And why it was inevitable in those places that people would turn to that uh, to be able to live. So this, that kind of film, like traffic, was, was so good uh, in terms of um, demonstrating uh, a global connectivity um, that I think other geopolitical scholars would find very appealing and instantly recognizable. But I'll just say one more thing on this. Uh, because it's a very, very large topic. Um, and I'm, my, my focus in this book, and I'm, I don't usually speak this way, but my focus was resolutely empirical uh, in this book. I was, I was determined to let the films speak for themselves and then compare that with what I knew. That's okay. the logic uh, of, the, of the president. I wanted to, I, I let the films speak for themselves because I wanted to see the people how they conducted their lives and how they dealt with political fallout, both in real life and in film. It was hugely significant then to me that I would read James Baldwin um, and I would agree to be um, a witness um, and use my direct experience and knowledge as a basis for judging the veracity of the films and the veracity of the history that came to that. There's a lot more that can be said about that. Um, but since I didn't talk about the theory in depth in, in the book, I, I'm, I've said enough of it now in this conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <clears throat> Border studies have built many concepts to study uh, their objects. We have been able to speak about uh, bordering processes, as you just said, also debordering, but also about border performativity or border work, Etc. Um, <clears throat> about your book, in which registers of border studies is your book situated? Well, I've, I've said a little bit about that now, um, because, and I'll, I will say more about it uh, as we as the conversation uh, goes on. Um, but I've been concerned to understand not not specifically the theoretical constructs, although I've focused then on a different set, perhaps, uh, that others uh, have done so. So a, a starting point for my work very much is um, uh, the concept of nation, yeah. the concept of nationalism, the concept of nation states, all representing varying degrees of awareness, identification, um, a group collectivity, and then the manifestation as a political space. Yeah. Um, this is this is the fascinating piece. It intersects, of course, in interesting ways with the individual, because here I have a group of individuals um, 
who are living in a particular place where there are already cross-border examples um, of uh, connection and coexistence that the Hana Adam Reservation um, Nation, excuse me, um, at the uh, US-Mexico border is, still exist as a kind of quasi-independent uh, organization, just you know, over, overstepping the border. So all those things um, count a great deal for me. Um, but at the end of the day, in this particular particular instance, much more than I normally do, as I said, um, I, I let I became an empiricist again. I just looked at what was there. I traveled and I listened. Um, and I did not worry about whether or not it fitted into particular theoretical constructs. I, I, I don't see my I don't see myself as making a contribution in those directions. But I'm sure that if other people looked at this book, which didn't forcefully present my own theoretical presuppositions, they too might get carried away on the empirical wave, as it were, and, and, and come up with the same kind of conviction uh, that I did. At, at the end of the book, however, I mean, I am translating these understandings into some recommendations about experiments in local democracy. Because I think to, to elaborate the nation idea a little bit more, there is a third nation in that in this space um, between the two nations uh, where uh, autonomy can be practiced and should be encouraged by, by various um, means to you know, develop a local democratic organization. And, and political scientists and geopoliticians have written more about this than I have. Um, and they, their work is just completely convincing to me. I like it. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for sharing with us all your experience uh, about border film and border studies and your discussion about our, your book. As you said, everything is hybrid. Huh? And let's move on on the section four now about uh, Mexican cinema, American cinema, and their linkages with the border. Uh, we imagine that there was also an evolution of the boundary object in American and Mexican cinema. Uh, maritime border and port of entry, land border, internal and external border, social borders, though, but also indigenous borders, open border, violent borders. And from obstacle to pathway, from scenic and panoramic composition, how um, have film representations of the borderlands evolved over the time? You know, I, I really think that's one of the central questions um, that, that this, the evidence in this book addresses. I'm not quite sure um, that you would have the same interpretations as me, but that's not the point. I'll just say simply that when you look at the way the, the the representations have worked, the films have actually created people and scenes, it, it goes quickly beyond the stereotypes that I began with earlier in this conversation. Um, happily, <laughs> I'm very glad to see some of those stereotypes disappear. But, but, but 
if you recall, when I said that you know the early silent films were, were basically westerns, cowboy and Indian films, um, and um, they were predominantly films in which the border acted as a background. It was an attractive scenery. It was an exotic scenery. And really, any kind of film could be filmed there. Westerns, thrillers, romances, you know, it was just beautiful and exotic, so it was fine. Um, the, the origins of, re the real origins of border film lay in the mid-20th century. Um, at, at that time, um, the emphasis in films was less cowboys and Indians, and it was more on migration. Migration quickly seized people's attention in the film world. And two important films came out, um, um, Border Incident on the, in the United States in 1949, and Espaldas Mojados, which means wetbacks, in a few years later in 1955 in Mexico. Um, and they dealt with the they dealt with the the, the object tremendously differently. The, the American film was about police police collaboration across the border to prevent exploitation of migrants. It was, it was in a sense it was a very forward looking liberal kind of agenda that uh, and a scientific agenda. That, that good policing, good communications, et cetera, et cetera, could, could conquer any uh, problem uh, brought about any criminals. So this was, this was very successful. It's quite a horrific film in many ways, um, but it, it's, it's absolutely fundamental in terms of understanding uh, the border film genre. Equally well, wetbacks, Espalas Mojados, uh, Mojados in the Mexican uh, side, of the, side of the line presented the Mexican migrant as a heroic figure. Okay. So this well-meaning, strong, passionate person goes to the United States to work and in so doing helps Mexico, helps his families, etc., etc. Um, and the, the migrants in the films who are subject to an intensely exaggerated warfare as soon as they approach the United States. Uh, it's, it's very moving, very convincing. But you also must understand that the film started with a warning that the, that the federal, US federal government insisted on, which said, do not do this. This is dangerous. Yeah. And then in the film, when Mexican migrants swam across the river, they were fired on immediately by guns and just killed before mm -hmm. they could land in America. So that, so that the warning that you're, you're going, they were, you, they were, in a word, they, were, they shot first and didn't even bother to ask questions afterwards. Mm. So it was, it was a tremendous difference. It's a shocking difference between the optimistic ways in which technology and science and policing on both sides collaboratively can solve crime. And the other one where Mexican laborer is a heroic figure advancing on a hostile nation mm. to try to work and better himself. It's usually men um, that are occurring at that time. So that was a big switch. That was, that's a marvelous juxtaposition. Migration was followed, however, quickly by crime. 
Yeah. The whole theme of noir films uh, in the 50s in the United States and later um, quickly found their way into border films. Um, Touch of Evil is the key film here with um, Austin Wells and Charlton Heston, who had recently done The Robe or some Christian epic, um, was now in brownface playing a Mexican a policeman um, alongside Janet Lee, uh, who was his blonde, beautiful American wife. It was a it was a mixed marriage, and it, and it's interesting that miscegenation, which is what this was, wasn't mentioned once in the film. And even the earliest films glossed over miscegenation as something that was purely trivial, not even worth mentioning. So the moralities. Uh, were very different, but but those were those are great films. Touch of Evil is a monumental monumental achievement. To just quickly finish this story, after middle of the century, toward the end of the century, border films started to appear very quickly and in larger numbers, and that was because um, the migration problem was running into large. Difficulties. I mean, there were the amount of illegal crossings were enormous. Um, there were reasons for that, and I won't go into them right now. But uh, there were stories. The stories of migrants came to the fore. The the moral and political economic dilemmas they faced were, were examined in a series of actually quite brilliant films. Um, uh, looking at life on the other side. Um, I'm talking about. Films like Lone Star um, or El Norte and so on. Um, they were just classic films. There was also some incredibly silly films like Born in East LA, where Cheech Marin gets deported accidentally and spends the rest of his life trying to get back. And so that's the rest, rest of the film trying to get back into the United States. And then finally, in terms of how these representations evolve, by the time you got to around the year 2000, the narco films, the drug films were dominant. Um, and there were some totally brilliant films. And the only comparison that I'll make was between Traffic, which is a forensic film on the drug trafficking industry and its impact, and then Sicario, which appeared about 10 years later, where the fundamental confession was that the, we lost the drug war. America and the United States lost the drug war, and now we're looking at the consequences of that. And it's it's French warfare. It's an amazingly powerful film showing how this, um, how, this how the drug wars have been lost and how cartels really dominated uh, aspects of life in, in both countries. So and that's a very long answer. I'm sorry. It's uh, but it, <laughs> it but going from westerns, migration, crime, life on the other side, and Narcolandia. I think that those are the, the big changes in the representations of these films. Thank you, Michael, for sharing all your knowledge and your passion for for all this culture and the movies about borderlands and borders. Uh, Michael, you make a case for border film genre. What does this consist of? Well, you know, it's, it, 
I think this is kind of a more um, a desire on my part to organize my knowledge, to understand it. I started writing this book, purely writing essays to myself, uh, and then they grew. Um, so as I said, the, I have about half the films in my genre collection are Mexican, about half are US films. There are 72 films that define, if you look at them, you'll, you'll have a historical account of the evolution of border films for the past 100 years. Um, the genre is important in all film studies as, as, as an idea about classifying um, films would have similar styles and treatments, topics. Um, so they, it's, it's the style and the themes and topics that define a genre. So Westerns, for example, or, or space science fiction, they're immediately recognizable by film, by director, by content, and they're actually used as a coherent framework to talk to audiences. It, they're used by critics to speak to people. Um, they're used by you and I when we recommend a, a film to each other, you know, oh, it's a romantic comedy, or it's a war film. Yeah. And we don't need to say anything else. It's a very convenient shorthand, but it also has um, uh, an effect of legitimizing a field of study okay. or a field of art. Yeah. So when you see film included in, you know, whatever newspapers you read alongside um, painting, alongside dance and things like that, I mean, filmmaking is has, is able to make a, a claim for artistic status, you know, something in the realm of creativity, which it fully deserves. I'm not disputing it. Um, but it's a, it's a classificatory exercise. Um, it enables us to talk about films and their evolution in a certain ways. So I, we have spoken now about origins. We've spoken about the golden age of border films. And we've also seen situations where, um, in, in border films where, you know, the, the, an, an old age, senescence starts in the genre. So for example, um, in uh, part of the border film, world, very soon the films became extraordinarily violent. They became like slasher movies, you know, that the only thing that was of concern was who died and how died. Mm -hmm. how died. And some films, mostly Mexican, I think, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but and that's not prejudice, but they're mostly Mexican. They, they just covered ways in which um, a killer, an assassin, different ways. How many different ways in one film can you kill a migrant? Mm. So groups of migrants crossing the desert, and one by one they'd be picked off until one heroic feature or one heroic character okay. gets, gets him. But they're pointless. Um, they're like a large res reservoir of slasher films which have occurred in the past. So the, the border film genre idea helps us to understand I think helps us to look at the films as a whole and to tell and to learn more about what they're telling us. I think that's what that's what they're about for me anyway. <laughs> Thank you again, Michael. Um, we enter in our last section about the scope of the analysis related to the border. 
and films relations. Uh, Mexico is one of the places where border art was born and many border arti artists act to resist, to try to transform representations. How can films and cinema help us better understand the phenomenon of borders and bordering processes? Well, this is the biggest challenge, and I'm glad you've kept it until last, Ben. Um, I, th I think what my experience has been that looking at films um, ha has made me rethink history um, and made me uh, understand the present dilemmas that the border faces better and also points even to some kind of resolution that I might not otherwise have seen. It's actually quite powerful if you, if you, if you state it that way. I mean, I'm, I'm revisiting history through film. I'm, I'm reconsidering our present dilemmas as a consequence of film, and I'm seeing solutions that I might not have seen without film. Okay. That's good. That's, that's hot stuff. Um, and I think you, you can see it. If, can I give one example just briefly? Um, yes. In the film Lone Star, um, which came out in the 80s, I recall, um, there, was a, it was a, there was a portrait along the Rio Bravo of um, generations in a small border town. The previous generations were totally racist, and the present generations were trying to revise and revisit and learn again from elaborate, you know, eliminating racism. And that was an extremely well done film where that uh, effort towards looking at, uh, situating the history, looking at the way racism found its expression, oftentimes in killing people uh, in its midsection, and then resolving uh, the dilemma at, at a single level, uh, single person level where two people come together for reasons which I can't go into right now. But at the end of the conversation, one's Mexican, one's American, um, and they look at each other, and the woman says to the man, forget the Alamo. Forget that seminal battle between the US and Mexico in, in the old days. You can dump all that BS and we can get on with our lives. And the, and the portrait, the portrayal of that is actually quite uplifting and very convincing in what you normally call a Western kind of uh, approach to filming. There are other films that, that force um, a greater look at the way politics operates at the borders. And I, I'll just say lastly that I think that you can see ways in which films also act behind the camera yeah. to, to uh, organize change. You know, the, the fights over the, over the Oscars recently and diversity in the Oscars is a good example here, perhaps. But in, but in the filming of The Wild Bunch, for example, in 1969 by Sam Peckinpah, um, Peckinpah really loved Mexico. Um, and when he pulled all these people from Mexico to work on his film, he found on the first day of filming that Mexicans had been told to go to a different place to eat mm -hmm. from the white actors. Um, 
he was appalled. And that was that changed. That was changed by the end of the day. Um, he changed the rule that, that, that segregated Mexicans from whites in the, in the canteen. And the other obvious example, which I mentioned briefly, is the way in which women are, are advancing in filmmaking in both countries. It's slow, um, and, but they, it is occurring. And that's, that's a behind the, behind the camera thing too. So there's a, it, it's, it's, it's very easy to say, oh, films you know, can't influence anybody. Well, but they do. Of and the course. way we make films influences people too. And the way I think we can rethink self-government and local democratic ex experiments in the border is just waiting to be exploited um, by us. Uh, and it's from film that that's coming. It's a very powerful thing. Of course, I agree with you. And two light questions. If I was a student of film, Michael, which films in your border film genre do you recommend? And uh, as a movie goer, which border films are your favorites? <laughs> well, you know, I can I can recommend classics, um, but not like them, and I can like films that are that are not classics. So you know, I'll, I'll be kind of eclectic. But uh, I've mentioned some of the classics. Um, if you're going to start this seriously. I think looking at Border Incident and Espaldos, Mojados, Wetbacks, they are the benchmarks for the beginning. Then you can go on to Lone Star, El Norte, and Traffic. I've also mentioned them as three very, very fundamental uh, things. Um, and today, there's just a proliferation of new things. I, I just mentioned two different films. Um, Born in East L.A., which I mentioned, I think, which is a, just the silliest film ever. Um, <laughs> I, I love it. So uh, it's a favorite film as well, as well as a classic. And the other one that I really like, too, is also deserving of some sort of classic status, is Sleep Dealer, mm -hmm. um, which was by Alex Rivera. Um, and that was one of the few what you'd call science fiction or fantasy films uh, That, that are on the list. It's not a, not a genre or subgenre that's attracted much people, but it's extremely clever, and it shows the world where the U.S.-Mexico border is entirely sealed, and what the consequences are. The consequences are quite drastic and dramatic, um, and I will not give the tale away, the tale of the story away. As for fun, um, you know, Touch of Evil is brilliant and it's also a classic uh we, if we really branch out we've got machete you know <laughs> rodriguez who well uh, is a famous southwestern um in texas um he is he's very funny he's very imaginative he's also can be very violent very yeah. uh uh mm, sexual in his films um but machete is a masterpiece <laughs> If you don't believe me, just take a look at the look at the film. Um, uh, Born in East LA, I mentioned. Sicario is is brilliant. Um, Sicario is that is that film where uh, it was declared quite forcefully that the, the drug wars had been lost and what the consequences are. If you, yeah. 
if you put traffic and Sicario together, it's just chilling. Um, and then the last one, if you get a chance to see it, try to see in Yaritu's carne y arena, means flesh and dust or flesh and, or, and sand. Um, it's, a, it's an immersive feature, it's not a feature film. Um, it's an immersive experience of crossing the border and um, it's terrifying. Uh, it might be important as the way we'll experience films in the future. Um, nobody knows what the future of film is, um, but that film really, really knocked me out. Um, when I had, when I left it, uh, I'm not going to give anything away about it. If, but you joined the experience of being a migrant. Um, when I left it, I had to disappear into a part of the museum where it was being shown and hide because I simply wasn't ready to come up into the real world after that. It made me feel as if I, I actually had been a migrant and I just arrived in the United States. Um, and there are so many good films out there. And um, if you take a look at the, the short lists that I've um, produced in the book, you pretty much soon quickly find things that will satisfy you. <laughs> Great, Michael. I have a, a ultimate question for you. My last question is more comparative. Um, how does coverage of the Mexican-US border in film compare with other borderlands? films elsewhere in the world? <laughs> All right. That's a very large, very tall order. But um, it's a very good question because, you know, people do things differently in other places. Um, it took me a long time to know Mexico and to speak authoritatively about other countries in this regard. I can't do that. I will not pretend to do that. The other thing that I will also mention to you as a immediate kickback is that um, I did only fictional films. Uh, there is a world of documentary film out there that's equally good uh, to feature on narrative films, and uh, we can't talk about them now. But since you're in Canada, this, this, the, the immortal border film in Canada is Canadian Bacon. Um, that is by Michael Moore, right? It came out in 1995, I think. John Candy was in it, and a, a number of other really excellent Canadian film stars, comics. Um, it's about the <laughs> it's about the invasion of Canada from the United States, uh, it, and I'm laughing at it because it is such a funny film. It's it, it's immortal, um, and it is on a par with anything I've seen anywhere else. On the other hand, I mean more I mean more seriously was Frozen River. Uh, it was a film by Courtney Hunt in 2008, and it was about um, the St. Lawrence River and trafficking of migrants and drugs across the river. Uh, I think it was around Cornwall Island in, near Ottawa. Um, and it, uh, was it the uh, Aquasathe tribe? No, nation. Forgive me, I can't remember, and I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it badly. I apologize. Um, but those are those are really good films. Um, Canadian Bacon is funny, and Frozen River is realist in an extreme. It's it's a superb film. Um, understand that 
those two films are not so far from some of the Canadian, some of the U.S. Mexican concerns too. But um, Canadians do things differently. Um, uh, the the nation with the most to offer, or the group of nations with the most to offer, I think, is the in the Israeli-Palestine situation, yeah. which wouldn't surprise you for one moment. Um, there's a filmmaker named Amos Gitai, um, who is probably the most prolific uh, director of films at the border in, in the world. Um, he's, he's, he's honored greatly. He lives in Paris now. Um, and there are so many films by him that I, that I hesitate to mention even one, but Amos Gitai, G-I-T-A-I, is, is phenomenal. Um, he, uh, I will say less about him than I should, but that's enough. Um, at the same time, in Israeli-Palestine situation, there's a tremendous amount of uh, fun and comedy. Um, my favorite is Tel Aviv on Fire mm -hmm. um, um, by a man called Zorabi. Um, it came out in 2019, which has got to be the funniest border film. Um, or up there, one of the five funniest border films. But dealing with the serious topic. If you want serious, um, uh, look for Lemon Tree, um, which is about a war between Palestine and Israel. And then lastly, just briefly, because this is a huge topic, um, I've started to watch more Latin American films, and some of those are just gut punches. Um, Bacurau is a Brazilian film, and it's about a small rural community. It's not actually a border community, but uh, the border comes in because people come from America and other countries to visit this community, and they're there because it's a theme park. They're there to assassinate the people in the villages. Mm -hmm. People in the villages don't like that. Um, it's a staggering film. It's terrifying. But so is um, Nuevo Orden, New Order. Um, that's, um, I can't remember. I think it might be not on Brazilian. That doesn't, doesn't matter. There's not enough time. New Order, uh, it's in English. Um, that's about authoritarian uh, governments. And that one should not be watched unless you're prepared to see some extreme extremely violent uh, things. I couldn't watch it, but I, that's why I shut my eyes, but I did see it, so powerful. And then more directly um, is Pajaras de, de Verano, um, um, Birds of Passage or Summer Birds or something like that, which was, um, I think another Brazilian film, or, and I didn't look these up, I'm sorry, I'm not ready for this, but it's uh, Birds of Summer, it's about, what happens in a community when the cartels take over, leaving behind, and, and, and these were indigenous people, which makes it doubly interesting. Um, and their way of life was predictably completely wrecked as they either rejected it and died, or they absorbed the ways of the cartels and they lost their souls and they lost their land and they lost their people. Um, that's a film taken up, a, a theme taken up by a, a number of other films um, in the United States and Mexico. I mentioned just one name, Identifying Features uh, in English, Cincinias Particulares uh, in Spanish. Um, but, you know, the, the, the conclusion 
and this is a very brief summary then, but the conclusion is that there are some terrific films out there um, in these various countries. And I do believe that they deal with these problems by and large in a very different ways with very different eyes, which makes them doubly, triply worthy of watching. Um, nobody can deal, I know from experience, <laughs> nobody could do with the films of two countries um, over a hundred years and remain sane. Um, and the idea of looking into uh, all these other places as well, but as you can tell from the films I mentioned, I don't resist the temptation, and I think it's totally worthwhile and highly recommended. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, uh, very much for um, your knowledge and your culture about border films. And thank you for participating in our podcast series. It was a very great discussion on border film and generally about culture of films and cultures of borderlands and lives of borderlanders. Thank you again, Michael Deere, uh, for your participation. Thank you very much indeed, Ben. And thank you to all my Canadian friends who actually supplied me with, with titles of um, Canadian films so I could learn more about uh, Canadian border films and you should all watch them. Thank you <laughs> very much. Thank you, Michael. This was the Borders in Globalization podcast. Today we were with Michael Deere. Thank you for your attention and see you soon for the next issue. Hasta luego. Bye-bye. <laughs>